The American people are about to weigh in on who's going to be the president. And that's the person, whoever that may be, who ought to be making this appointment. Really? Really, you liar? Hi, Mitch McConnell. You're a goddamn liar. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, K- KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KODX in Seattle. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you. Streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, uh, as you can tell, I'm not ha- I'm not happy, Desi Doyen. Can you tell already <laughs> from the first tell. 10 seconds of the show? Oh, yes, I can tell. Even before Donald Trump's third radical Supreme Court justice was seated this week, the stolen, radical uh, Republican uh, Supreme Court issued a new decision on Monday night siding with Republicans to prevent Wisconsin from counting mailed ballots that are postmarked by Election Day but are not received until afterwards. In other words, uh, cases where voters did all the right things, mailed their, cast their ballot, mailed it on time, It's postmarked on time, but it showed up too late. The U.S. Supreme Court thinks those votes should be thrown out. That's what this Supreme Court has now decreed. In a 5-3 to party-line order, the justices on Monday refused to reinstate a lower federal court order that had called for mail-in ballots to be counted if they are received up to six days after the November 3 election day, as long as they are postmarked by then. As the COVID pandemic rages, the court has failed to adequately protect the nation's voters, said Justice Elena Kagan in a dissent that noted that the state allowed the six-day extension for primary voting back in April and that roughly 80,000 ballots were received after the day of the primary election. Back then, of course, Republicans were not uh, competing with Democrats, so they didn't mind counting all of the ballots. 
And with a record number of mail-in ballots requested and slowdowns in place at the U.S. Postal Service under the uh, uh, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a Trump GOP donor, the number of ballots um, that were cast in time but arrived too late to be counted under the Supreme Court's new order could easily exceed 100,000 in a state that Donald Trump is said to have won by just over 20,000 votes. That is very bad. And I hope to have more to say about that in the coming days as the concurring opinions from both of Trump's justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, make that ruling even more troubling than it sounds so far. And it already sounds pretty bad because it is. But with the swearing in of yet another Trump nominated justice at the same time on Monday night, we need to talk about what we can do about any of this right now. For the moment, it's a, this is a call for every voter in every state who plans to vote absentee to get it done right now. And if you do, bring it in in person where it is allowed. Check your local jurisdictions for that and do it today and tell everyone you know to do it today. Do not wait. And that's not just in Wisconsin. That is advice for everyone everywhere. At this point, less than one week from Election Day, do not mail your ballot. Deliver it in person yourself. But it also comes uh, as a siren warning about where we are headed in this country unless we vote in unheard of numbers this year and then force the Democrats to take action to right the wrongs of these radical Republicans and their activist judges and Supreme Court justices. Now, Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court late on Monday by a deeply divided Senate with Republicans overpowering Democrats to install Trump's nominee just eight days before the election and after more than 60 million Americans have already cast their vote. Unless Democrats take action to expand the court, if they are able to win both the White House and a majority in the U.S. Senate and go on to kill the filibuster in order to do it, the unprecedented move to install a U.S. Supreme Court justice this close to a presidential election is likely to secure a hard right court majority for years to come. Trump's choice to fill the vacancy of the late liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg almost certainly opens a new era of rulings on abortion, on the Affordable Care Act, and even on Donald Trump's own re-election. Democrats had little or no tools to either delay or block the nomination after Mitch McConnell and the Republicans killed the filibuster for Supreme Court justices themselves after they were unable to muscle through Trump's first selection his stolen selection of Neil Gorsuch following a full year of Republicans insisting that no Supreme Court justice should ever be seated during a presidential election year. That insistence began nine months before Election Day in 2016 following the February death of Justice Antonin Scalia that year. That's in stark contrast with the Republican position just four years later. When Ginsburg passed away just over a month before the election, when millions of Americans had already cast their votes, the hypocrisy, of course, is simply stunning. But if you need a reminder, here are just a few of those Republican senators back in 2016 explaining why it was inappropriate, outrageous 
unheard of to seat a new justice until Americans were able to have a voice in that year's presidential election. The American people are about to weigh in on who's going to be the president. And that's the person, whoever that may be, who ought to be making this appointment. Our side, meaning the Republican side, believes very strongly that the people deserve to be heard. There is a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. We ought to make the 2016 election a referendum on the Supreme Court. It's about the principle. The principle being that it's up, it's up to the American people in this next election, no matter who they choose. Why would we squelch the voice of the people? Why would we deny the voters a chance to weigh in on the makeup of the Supreme Court? It's the will of the American people and, and, and their voices uh, that need to be heard. I think the president should allow the next president to appoint the justice to the Supreme Court. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. Oh, boy, do I hope they use his words against him in South Carolina. Every single one of those Republican senators you just heard from 2016, every single one of them voted on Monday to seat a new Supreme Court justice uh, just eight days before Election Day. Monday's vote was the closest high court confirmation ever carried out before a presidential election and the first in modern times with zero support from the minority party. Zero. By way of reminder, Scalia was confirmed to the court back in 1986 by a vote of 98 to 0 in a Senate that was then controlled also by Republicans. Ginsburg was seated in 1993 by a 96 to 3 margin in a Senate controlled by Democrats. And the Republican appointee, Justice Anthony uh, Kennedy, he was the last to be seated in a presidential election year. He was seated by a Democratic-controlled Senate in 1988 with Republican Ronald Reagan in the White House. That vote was also 97 to 0. The vote for Barrett was by Republicans only, 52 to 48, with one Republican, Maine's Susan Collins, joining the Democrats to vote no, stating that it was too close to the election to do so. She is locked in a close re-election battle with Democrat Sarah Gideon in Maine, who is said to be four points ahead of Collins right now, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average today. No other Supreme Court justice has ever been confirmed on a recorded vote with no support from the minority party in at least 150 years, according to the Senate Historical Office. That is how radical these Republicans are. On Monday night, with national COVID-19 rates spiking to a new peak in infections nationwide, Barrett was sworn in during a, a televised uh, primetime political event at the White House that you paid for, hosted by Donald Trump, with a ceremonial swearing in of the court's newest justice by Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. She was sworn in for real by Chief Justice John Roberts at the court on Tuesday morning in a private ceremony. So, in other words, the ceremony at the White House wasn't the official ceremony. It nope. was the reality TV ceremony. It was the campaign event ceremony that you and I and all the taxpayers paid for. 
One month ago, you'll recall Barrett's nomination in the White House Rose Garden became a super spreader event after which Trump and his wife and his high school aged kid all tested positive for the virus, along with as many as 30 White House staffers and attendees at the event, including three Republican senators. Vice President Mike Pence, who as president of the Senate would normally preside over such votes in the upper chamber, he was not in attendance after a letter had to be sent from Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer and uh, the leadership team saying that Pence's presence after five of his top staffers recently tested positive for the virus, which we learned only over the weekend, and they had tried to hide, that that would not only violate virus guidelines of the CDC, but, quote, would also be a violation of common decency and courtesy. For some unknown reason, then, Pence decided to do the right thing and not show up for the vote. Democrats had argued for weeks that the vote was being improperly rushed and insisted during an all-night Sunday session that it should be up to the winner of the November 3rd election to name the nominee. You know, just like the Republicans used to pretend they also believed. Speaking near midnight on Sunday, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, called the vote on Barrett, quote, illegitimate and, quote, the last gasp of a desperate party. Democratic vice presidential nominee Senator Kamala Harris admonished Republicans for confirming Barrett to the court on Monday, vowing that Democrats, quote, won't forget a move that they have described as a power grab. She said today Republicans denied the will of the American people by confirming a Supreme Court justice through an illegitimate process. She said that minutes after Barrett was officially confirmed to the court adding, we won't forget this. Well, we will make sure she does not. Trump has said he wanted to swiftly install a ninth justice to the Republicans' already stolen 5-3 court in order to resolve election disputes in his favor, also noting that he is hopeful that the court will strike down the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which has allowed some 30 million Americans access to health care insurance, and protected coverage for about 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions. The court, with Barrett seated on it, will hear the Republican challenge to that law just one week after Election Day, uh, after Barrett uh, previously decried the court's previous upholding of that landmark health care law as being wrongly decided. We'll see uh, if Mitch McConnell is right when he says voting to confirm this nominee should make every single senator proud that before all of the Democrats in the chamber had left after casting their votes and before the confirmation had been secured by Republicans in that rare weekend session in the Senate scheduled by McConnell to ram Barrett in onto the court as soon as possible before the election. He declared that Barrett's opponents, quote, won't be able to do much about this. For a long time to come. Well, as I say, we will see as we'll be joined shortly by the director of a group named Take Back the Court. But it should be noted uh, as the conversation begins on the need for Democrats to take action to restore balance to the Supreme Court and to the federal court system itself after years of court packing by Republicans that when Barrett was confirmed by Senate Republicans on Monday night, it officially brought minority rule to the highest court in the land. 
Five of the now six Republican justices, a majority of the court, have been confirmed by Senates with Republican majorities that represent fewer Americans than their corresponding Democratic minorities. That's pointed out by Stephen Wolf over at Daily Coast Elections last night. Uh, further underscoring this development, he says three of those five justices, Barrett, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, were appointed by a president who lost the popular vote. While the other two, John Roberts and Samuel Alito, uh, were appointed by a president who likewise lost the popular vote for his initial term and might never have become president without that electoral college victory. Only Clarence Thomas, among the Republican appointees, was both appointed by a president who won the popular vote and a Senate where the majority party, in that case a Democratic majority, represented more Americans. That is how out of balance this nation has now become and this high court. It isn't just the lack of popular support that delegitimizes this Supreme Court majority, Wolf notes. Republicans violated two centuries worth of norms, two centuries worth in order to obtain it. First with their blockade of Obama's nominee Merrick Garland, and now with Barrett's rushed confirmation, with this ill-won majority of radicals, he says the Supreme Court is now poised to gut the rule of law, render the Voting Rights Act a dead letter and give a green light to GOP gerrymandering and voter suppression efforts, all so that Republicans can permanently entrench minority rule at every single level of government. That's all that's at stake. When we talk about the survival of democracy, that's what we're talking about. Since 2010, uh, since those elections back then uh, swept Republicans into power across the country, the GOP has passed restrictions on the right to vote in state after state, abetted by right-wing judges confirmed by the very same Senate majorities that the GOP has held while representing fewer Americans than Democrats. If the Democrats are nonetheless able to overcome those barriers to voting in 2020 by winning the presidency in both chambers of Congress, still a very big if, it may be their last chance, he says, for the foreseeable future to rescue American democracy from Republicans' efforts to lock in minority rule potentially for decades. When the Senate Republicans voted on uh, Sunday to put Amy Coney Barrett on a glide path to a lifetime Supreme Court appointment just one week before Election Day, they were making a bet that Democrats would not retaliate and erase the right wing right wing gains that Republicans have been able to obtain while controlling the U.S. Senate over the past few years. McConnell said a lot of what we've done over the last four years will be undone sooner or later by the next election. He said that on Sunday, his remarks about the undoing of what Republicans have done over the past four years after the upcoming election seems to be an admission on his part of the belief that Republicans are about to lose control of the U.S. Senate and or the White House. But that con contradicts recent claims by both McConnell himself and vulnerable Republican senators like Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Joni Ernst of Iowa. They're out there telling voters in their reelection bids that Democrats will, quote unquote, pack the Supreme Court if they win. 
That's not what Mitch McConnell was saying on Sunday in the Senate. But uh, will they expand the court if they win? They are Democrats, after all, not known for their bold progressive agendas. And progressive activists, uh, NBC reports, saw McConnell's comments uh, that the seating of Barrett and other Republicans on the stolen court is something that Democrats won't be able to do much about for a long time to come. They saw that as a dare to Democrats who are projected in some polls to win the White House in both houses of Congress. Brian Fallon, a former aide to Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Uh, who now runs the court-focused group Demand Justice, told NBC News McConnell is clearly betting against the Democrats mustering the resolve to ever alter the structure of the court. Given how far the movement to add seats has already come in just two years, said Fallon, and how likely it is for this this six to three court to produce rulings threatening progressive priorities, I think it's an unwise bet, he said. Well, right now, we don't know, but we have seen even Democratic institutionalists like uh, Delaware's Chris Coons uh, suggest uh, he filled Joe Biden's seat in uh, Delaware after Biden became vice president. He's suggesting the Democrats are looking at serious court reform. Senator Angus uh, King, the uh, independent from Maine, he caucuses with Democrats, but he's also... Uh, a longtime institutionalist. He said, I don't want to pack the courts. I don't want to change that number. I don't want to have to do that. But if all of this rule breaking is taking place, what does the majority expect? Well, I think what they expect is for the Democrats to fold. And given Democrats history, I'm not sure it's an unwise bet. But uh, Minority Leader Schumer called this a cynical power grab. He said it's a travesty for the Senate, for the country. And it will be an inerasable stain on this Republican majority forevermore, telling Americans that it would create a majority on the court that threatens your fundamental rights. But what he didn't say is how Democrats would respond if they win the power to retaliate. Will they heed the calls from progressives to add seats to the Supreme Court, pursue other court changes like lifetime limits or back off and learn to live with a six to three conservative majority? We'll take a quick break and we will come back with Aaron Belkin, the director of Take Back the Court, the first group to officially form to call for the expansion of the Supreme uh, Supreme Court to discuss how that fight has changed over the past several years and the past several hours since the GOP's continuing theft of the court. And with the seating of Amy Coney Barrett just eight days before the next presidential election day. I hope you'll pay attention. That's straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. There's an idea. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Following the unprecedented rush by Republicans to jam through the seating of Donald Trump's third justice appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday, after a full year of pretending back in 2016 that Republicans believed a Supreme Court justice should never be seated during a presidential election year, the push by progressives to expand the court, as we have been calling for here for some time, has quickly heated up, with several groups now pushing Democrats to do exactly that. One group, calling itself Demand Justice, headed up by former top Senate aides and Obama administration officials, released this video today. It's official. Trump has appointed three Supreme Court justices, stealing a seat from President Obama, rushing another during an election, turning the judiciary into just another arm of the Republican Party. And if we don't act, we'll continue to lose decades of progress on health care, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, and more. There's only one way to fix it. If we're going to save our democracy, it's time to talk about court reform. Reform means expanding the number of justices to restore legitimacy and balance to a court that's been rigged by partisan efforts. You know the Supreme Court has nine justices, but did you know that number isn't actually in the Constitution? The framers left it to Congress to decide how many seats there are, and they can change it with a simple act of Congress. It's happened seven times in the nation's history. In fact, changing the size of the Supreme Court is an idea that's almost as old as the Constitution itself. And you know who had no problem with changing the number of court seats? Republicans, in 2016, when they limited the Supreme Court to eight justices for almost a year to steal a seat from President Obama and vowed to keep it that way if Hillary Clinton won the election. And they've done it with state Supreme Courts across the country. Now they've manipulated their way to a 6-3 Supreme Court that is completely out of step with the country. The court's illegitimate far-right majority, installed through hyper-partisan political schemes, will put even settled precedents on our rights at risk, undermine any chance of making progress on issues like health care, climate change, and gun violence, and continue to bolster voter suppression efforts that threaten our free and fair elections. Our Supreme Court is broken. Democracy is teetering on the edge. Reform is the solution, and we need it now. Yes, we do. And it's not just groups like Demand Justice who are calling for expanding the court. Democrats, elected Democrats from progressive senators like Elizabeth Warren to more moderate ones like vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, are now suggesting that the seating of Amy Coney Barrett closer to any presidential election in American history has now delegitimized the high court. So the calls for court expansion are likely to only get much louder. At least that is the hope for many of us. But Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden has been very conservative in his calls for reform, either because he doesn't wish to throw a bomb into a presidential contest that he appears to be winning, as is, or... As a longtime senator and institutionalist himself, he is quite conservative when it comes to what Republicans like to describe as court packing, even going so far as to call it that himself during a 60 Minutes interview that aired on Sunday. Our friend and Supreme Court reporter Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, after Barrett's ceremonial swearing in at a White House political event on Monday night, noted on Twitter that, quote, everybody responding that Democrats are cowards 
should channel their energy into organizing and lobbying your representatives. Right now, many American Democratic lawmakers are scared to expand the court, he tweeted. Your job is to make them scared of what will happen if they don't expand the court. Joining us now is Aaron Belkin. He's the director of yet another group hoping to take back the courts by expanding them. In fact, the group is called Take Back the Court, an organization seeking to inform the public about the danger that the Supreme Court poses to democracy and about the viability of court expansion as the only strategy that rebalances the court after its 2016 theft. Aaron Belkin helped design much of the public education campaign responsible for helping to end the military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy in 2011 and is also author of the ebook How We Won, Progressive Lessons from the Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Aaron Belkin, welcome to the broadcast, sir. A pleasure to be here. First question, Mr. Belkin, does the public need to be informed about the dangers that the Supreme Court poses to democracy at this point? Or do Senate Democrats need to be informed about that uh, even more than the American public? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I don't know if I would really distinguish the two. I think they're, it's just uh, important to have a robust national conversation about the courts that we really have not been having until um, very recently. On the right, conservative thought leaders have been effective in talking with their voters about the courts going back a generation. Mm-hmm. But among progressives, there's been a much less robust uh, conversation, although I would say now with the theft of the court in 2016 and then uh, the way that Brett Kavanaugh was forced onto the court and and how the, the Coney Barrett nomination was held, more and more progressives are, uh, are seeing the danger. Now, you guys had been calling for expanding the courts even uh, prior to the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as uh, uh, I believe. And that was something that, you know, has sort of been bothering me there. They, you know, we saw a lot of Democrats say, well, if you force her onto the courts, then we may be forced to expand the courts in the future. But in truth, it seemed like an expansion was called for after what you describe and I describe as that theft in 2016. No. Well, we we planted our flag in 2018, and we were the first organization to call for court expansion. And at the time, no other organizations were on board. Mm-hmm. And today, I'm really um, honored and, and thrilled that, that more than 50 uh, progressive organizations are calling for expansion. Yes, um, there was a strong rationale for expanding the courts as far back as uh, as a couple of years ago. And, and, and it's not just about the theft of the court from Barack Obama, but it's also that we are facing planetary emergencies like climate change mm-hmm. with effectively no time left on the clock. And we're also facing you know, what you could call democracy emergencies, where the, the court itself has worked hard to keep black and brown voters from the polls. And this court, uh, even the court as it was configured in 2017, was highly unlikely to allow the next president to deal with those emergencies. And so, yes, we, we've been calling for court expansion for a couple of years now. And what sort of specific reforms is Take Back the Court calling for at this point? With, of course, a six to three GOP majority now seated specifically, how many seats are you talking about adding? And uh, does it include expansion of the lower federal courts as well? Yes. Um, so, so to have robust judicial reform, what you really need to do is uh, four things. You need to expand lower federal courts, commensurate with uh, the number of seats that Mitch McConnell 
prevented President Obama from filling during the last two years of his presidency, and that was about 119 lower court judges. And so you need two to nullify each of those that was uh, mm. that, that were not seated. So that's 238. Um, then you need to expand the Supreme Court um, just by enough justices to get the job done, to deliver a court that will allow the next administration to address the emergencies we face. But at the same time, we should also put in place term limits to try to minimize some of these problems moving forward. And then finally, um, the Supreme Court, unlike other federal courts, does not subject itself to a code of ethical conduct. And so you have situations where, for example, Justice Thomas's wife is lobbying President Trump in the White House the mm-hmm. same week that President Trump is a party to a lawsuit in front of Justice Thomas, and you know, and he doesn't recuse himself. So, so there needs to be a code of conduct as well. Yeah, that is something that I think people don't understand. There are specific mandates in place, guidelines, mandates, whatever you want to call them, for 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 when a federal court judge should recuse him or herself uh, from a case. But somewhat surprisingly. Those guidelines, and I don't know if there are any guidelines, but those guidelines do not apply to Supreme Court justices. Any idea why not? And should those uh, guidelines for for the lower federal courts also be applied directly to the justices on the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm actually not a history of where this uh, where this gap comes from and why it um, uh, why it exists. That that would be a great uh, a research question, um, but you are correct that the that the guidelines that apply to uh, appellate and district courts don't apply to the Supreme Court. And yes, those standards should be applied uh, across the whole federal federal judiciary, so lower courts and the Supreme Court. Joe Biden, during his uh, sixty minutes interview over the weekend with Nora O'Donnell, finally announced his position on expanding uh, the court and for uh, court reform. Uh, with O'Donnell and, unfortunately, Biden using sort of right-wing framing to describe efforts for long-overdue court reform as court packing by calling for a six-month-long bipartisan commission to study the idea. If elected, what I will do is I'll put together a national commission of bipartisan commission of scholars, constitutional scholars, Democrats, Republicans, liberal, conservative, and I will... uh, ask them to, over uh, 180 days, come back to me with recommendations as to how to uh, reform the court system, because it's getting out of whack, um, the way in which it's being handled. And it's not about court packing. There's a number of other things that our constitutional scholars have debated, and I'd look to see what recommendations that commission might make. So you're telling us you're going to study this issue about whether to pack the court. No, whether there's a number of alternatives that are go well beyond packing. This is a live ball. Oh, it is a live ball. No, it is a live ball. We're going to have to do that. And you're going to find there's a lot of conservative constitutional scholars who are saying it as well. The last thing we need to do is turn the Supreme Court into just a political football. Whoever has the most votes gets whatever they want. Presidents come and go. Supreme Court justices stay for generations. So uh, first question, Aaron Belkin, uh, shouldn't the Democrats nominee for president know better by now than to fall into the right wing court packing terminology there, especially after years of the Republicans actually court uh, packing the courts? Uh, And second, are you and your group satisfied with the call for a commission to study the matter over time versus striking while the iron is still white hot on this issue, as it seems to be today and as it seems like it would be uh, on January 20, if uh, if Biden is sworn in. I mean, I, 
Uh, you know, the, the, the media has portrayed this as a situation that's, you know, very complicated for Joe Biden to navigate. I think there was even the New York Times headline that he's in a tricky position. And I just, I frankly think that's malarkey. I think he's handled the situation exactly as he should. It's a, it's a situation where there's tremendous momentum for judicial reform and the momentum is building uh, every day. Just yesterday, we had uh, AOC and uh, Senator uh, Angus King uh, Mm -hmm. from Maine and uh, Daily Cause and Black Lives Matter call for court expansion. So it's a rapidly evolving situation. He is going to have to come in and figure out what to do, which is exactly what he plans to do. And of course, it makes sense to study that um, and and to be thoughtful and deliberate. So so I don't think it's tricky at all. I mean, in in a situation where the politics are continuing to play out, um, it wouldn't make sense to have uh, a fixed position. So so in terms of his positioning, I think he's handled that just right. And I don't think it was a difficult thing for him to figure out, although, you know, he would have to speak for himself about that. Um, it just doesn't seem like it was a, a complicated moment for him. And um, and then in terms of the speed, um, yeah, I mean, we need to press aggressively for court expansion um, out of the gate moving forward if there's a Biden administration. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, all the legislation, all the executive orders, all the agency regulations, those are going to be at risk um, uh, in a Biden administration, and the courts will have a Biden administration in handcuffs on day one. Um, And so, sure, you know, maybe he's saying now it's going to be a six-month commission. Maybe uh, if the courts uh, start uh, putting him in handcuffs on day one, uh, their sense of the timing will change, but 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 I, I I'm quite confident that he 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 gets it and he's he's saying what he needs to say. That's good to hear. I hope you're right. Uh, I I'm a little bit worried, especially he notes it will be a bipartisan commission on this. Is there a a bipartisan commission that could actually come up with a recommendation to expand the court by you know four seats to give uh, uh, Democrats back a majority that they rightfully should have had in the first place? I, I mean, he's I, I I don't think anyone knows who's going to be on that commission, and mm-hmm. um, I'm sure he'll like with his entire, you know, the executive branch, he's going to staff it with really good people and, um, and experts. And, and, and if you are an expert on judicial reform and you look at the way the Republicans have packed the courts, uh, preventing Obama from seating 119 lower court judges, stealing a Supreme Court seat in 2016, rushing through uh, Brett Kavanaugh without a full vetting of his record, then rushing through uh, Coney Barrett, um, while people are voting, uh, experts will understand the the case for judicial reform and uh, and, uh, and and will make the right recommendations. Oh, you're very uh, optimistic. I hope you're right, Aaron. Uh, and of course, any such reforms uh, will almost certainly require the end of the legislative filibuster in order to get it passed in the Senate, even if Democrats are able to take back the majority there in that chamber while winning the White House. Uh, still big ifs at this hour, I should note, though it's looking encouraging. Uh, except for the actions, ironically enough, being taken by the by the Supreme Court and other federal courts to limit access to the polling place, counting of ballots and so forth, which could change everything uh, between now and the time the elections are certified. So I warn uh, Democrats not to get too excited just yet. But I'm getting the sense from Democrats that they may have more fear about 
ending the filibuster than of expanding the court. Uh, What's the sense that you are getting from folks in the Senate about this as you guys have been uh, calling for the expansion of the court, which would require, uh, you know, we get rid of the filibuster uh, longer than uh, any other group out there right now? Yeah, I I mean, you know, when when I started Take Back the Court two years ago, it was it was really it was about the courts, of course, but 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 more broadly, it was about saving democracy. And 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 I look back in the in the founding documents for Take Back the Court, mm-hmm. and um and what we said in those documents was that to restore democracy, really three things would have to happen. So first of all, the Democrats would have to, you know, if, if premised on a on a victory in in the election, would have to kill the filibuster because otherwise they wouldn't be able to pass any laws. Mm-hmm. Second of all, they would have to pass aggressive democracy legislation uh, to ban voter suppression, unrig the system, uh, ban gerrymandering, uh, limit dark money, things like that. But then third of all, if you only do those two steps, uh, Justice Roberts and his conservative colleagues would ruin that democracy legislation because those bills are designed to fix the problems that he and his colleagues uh, largely created. And so in order to protect those bills and unrig the system, you need to expand the courts. So that's a three-part plan. And when I started the organization, all three of those ideas were pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. But look at where we are today. On democracy legislation, the party is clearly committed to H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. On killing the filibuster, I'm not saying that these are going to be easy lifts and that it's a done deal. And for all we know, we might even, you know, lose the election. So we might not get a majority in the Senate. But, you know, the the central opponents of filibuster reform, like Joe Manchin and Chris Coons, um, who've been against filibuster reform for years, have said, you know what, we're, we're looking at the way McConnell's behaving, and we get that nothing will get done in a new Senate unless we uh, modify the filibuster. And so it's no longer pie in the sky. And on judicial reform, reform um, as you know, just mentioned, I, you know, I, I didn't in any way mean to imply that it's an easy lift under a Biden administration to get reform, but the President of the United States has said that this is going to be on his agenda, and Senator Schumer, um, who would be Senate leader um, uh, if Democrats come back to power, um, has said that, quote-unquote, everything is on the table. And so um, we really do have a chance, and there is a realistic path to restoring the democracy, making sure everybody gets to vote, banning gerrymandering, banning dark money. These things really could happen now, and it's exciting. It, it is exciting if it happens, if it continues to happen. Uh uh, you know, I'm I'm worried about uh, Democrats pulling their punches. That was one of the reasons I wanted to share that that uh, that tweet from our friend Mark Joseph Stern saying, yeah, it really is our job. It's the public's job to make Democrats scared of what will happen if they don't take the right actions here. Uh, finally, uh, Aaron Belkin, of course, uh, the big argument, uh, at least by Republicans and or those who fear expanding the Supreme Court, Uh, or killing the filibuster, is that Republicans will simply do the same thing the next time they gain a legislative majority in both chambers uh, while winning the White House. Uh, They'll just expand it again. Uh, How does your group respond to that and to what could become an ever uh, a never ending cycle of changing the balance of the courts every time uh, one party or the other gets a trifecta? So those are so it's two separate um, sets of considerations on Republican retaliation for the filibuster and also for the courts. Should I address both of those? Sure, please do. Okay. 
So on the courts, three things. And yes, um, fair-minded people, very smart people raise the concern about Republican retaliation, but if the Democrats expand the court. But there are three things to consider about that. First of all, the Republicans already stole the court in 2016 and mm-hmm. arguably again this week. Mm-hmm. And if your wallet is stolen, you would not forego efforts to recover it just because it might be stolen again. And in a situation in which there is no time left on the climate clock, it's much better to have a situation where the Republicans steal the court and then the Democrats rebalance it and the Republicans steal it again, the Democrats rebalance. That's much, much better than unilateral surrender. So that's point one. Mm-hmm. Point two is that even if, and then we'll get to the filibuster next, point two out of three is that even if the Democrats do absolutely nothing, zero, you know, no code of conduct, no term limits, no court expansion, no judicial reform, the Republicans will pack the court the next time they have the chance to do so, if that's what they need to do to control it. How do we know that? Because they've been packing state courts for years, and they Mm -hmm. have been trying to do that all over the country, and they packed the Georgia and Arizona state Supreme Court successfully. Mm -hmm. Um, They changed the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court in order to steal it in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, And the very idea of court expansion um, was first proposed in its modern incarnation was uh, first proposed by the co-founder of the Federalist Society a few years ago, well Mm -hmm. before Take Back the Court uh, started talking with progressives about this. And so it's their idea. And, you know, anyone who has seen how this party has behaved over the last four years who doubts that they would hesitate to pack the court, I would, I would argue, is not being realistic about what the Republican Party has become. And then the third thing about Republican retaliation is that counterintuitively, and this is a bit of a counterintuitive argument, but I, I, I nonetheless believe that it's right, is that court expansion counterintuitively is the best way to protect the court from Republican retaliation. And the reason for that is that, as I mentioned before, court expansion is really not just about the court, but it's about passing a democracy bill that unrigs the system and then protecting that bill from the court moving forward. If you unrig the system by uh, banning gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression, dark money, create voter registration, things like that in H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Act, the ban is 40 to 50 million voters to the rolls. In that unrigged system, the Republican Party will have a hard time competing in an, in an unrigged system unless they de-radicalize at least somewhat. And the very reasons that they cheat and have been cheating for a generation um, is because the things they stand for are unpopular. And so if you unrig the system, they're going to have to de-radicalize, or at least that's the best path towards getting them to de-radicalize moving forward. And if they de-radicalize, it's the de-radicalized Republican Party that would that protects the court from Republican retaliation. Mm. And so, and, 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 you know, I think progressives have a fantasy about, uh, you know, de-radicalizing the Republican Party at the ballot box, but that just doesn't work. I mean, we've thrashed the Republicans four times over the last generation, going back to 92, and they've gotten more radical each time. Yeah. So, so the, only, the only way to get that de-radicalization is to unrig. So, so that's on retaliation for the courts. Should, should I address retaliation for the filibuster? Yeah, very quickly, if you have a second. Well, Mitch McConnell has kept the filibuster in place because he knows that it helps Republicans more than it helps Democrats. It helps Republicans and it hurts Democrats. And it goes back to a contradiction that structures American public opinion. And the contradiction is something that political scientists discovered about 50 years ago when they realized that the American public doesn't like to establish new government programs. But once those programs are up and running, 
they generally like the programs. And what that means effectively is that with the filibuster in place, the Democrats can almost never assemble a supermajority to build a government program. But once they get the program in place, what protects it moving forward is its popularity. It's not the filibuster. And notice, by the way, that when the Republicans tried to kill the ACA, they subjected themselves to an obscure Senate procedure known as reconciliation that would have only required them to get 51 votes to kill ACA, and they couldn't find the 51 votes. Mm. So it's not the filibuster that protects Democratic programs. It's the popularity of the programs. The Republicans, by contrast, are able to do what they want to do, which is cut taxes on the rich by using this obscure tactic, budget reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And so if the, if the filibuster is eliminated, the short bottom line is that the Democrats will need to use their power and, and just pass programming that people like. And yes, the Republicans will be able to kill some of that programming, but they won't be able to kill all of it. And on balance, the country will be better off. And I, I guess the last thing I would say is that, you know, if Barack Obama had not had to deal with the filibuster in 2009, we would have had climate legislation and card check for unions and a public option on health care. And we would have had just like a much better country. And mm. the Republicans would not have been able to eliminate all of that. Uh, and the Republicans might not have had as good a chance of winning in 2016 with all of those programs yeah. in place. Uh, That's right. Well thunk, sir. Aaron Belkin is the director of Take Back the Court. We'll call you the oldest organization seeking to expand the Supreme Court and ex- and educate the public about the necessity for exactly that. You can find their work at TakeBackTheCourt.today. That's TakeBackTheCourt.today. You can find them on the Twitters at TakeBackTheCT. You can also find Aaron on the Twitters at Aaron Belkin. Really appreciate you joining us today at the last minute, sir. Hope to talk to you again in the future. Good luck with your work. Thank you so much. You bet. You know, a uh, former aide to Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid told NBC this week that Mitch McConnell is setting up decades of minority rule by white conservatives and betting that Democrats won't take the bold steps necessary to counter him. It's up to Democrats not just to win, but use their power to prove him wrong. That's a former aide of Harry Aide, of Harry Reid. I would argue it is up to us to force the Democrats to do exactly that. And I'd like to say, hey, one fight at a time. But unfortunately, now we've got all of these fights all at the same time, whether we like it or not. Yes, all the fights all the time requires voters to step up and demand, demand it of their elected representatives. Now, I'm glad that uh, Aaron Belkin there referred repeatedly to the necessity of action on climate change. Me too. Speaking of existential fights that we all now face, all at the same time. Well, Desi Doyen, I know you've got a little something to say about that (laughs) as well in our latest Green News Report. That is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh, 
I had so much else I had hoped to get to today, Desi Doyen. <laughs> I know. It's a 10-pound show and a one-pound bag. So much Republican radicalism, so little time. Oh, well, that'll have to wait for our next broadcast. Until then, it is our latest Green News Report. This is storm number 27, by the way. 28 is the record, so we're only one away. Yet another hurricane takes aim at the Gulf Coast. The winds came with a vengeance, flames and thick smoke darkening the sky. Yet another round of hurricane-force winds and fires in California and Colorado. Plus, you both have very different visions on climate change. Truth and nonsense on climate change at the final presidential debate of 2020. All of that truth and nonsense straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Joyan. Stand back and stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. They want to spend a hundred trillion dollars. They want to knock down buildings and build new buildings with little tiny small windows. Yes, so you can open them with your little tiny small hands. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we are officially out of Greek letters that I know in the alphabet. So uh, where are we now in this record-breaking storm season? We are now up to Hurricane Zeta, another hurricane for the Gulf of Mexico. It is on track to strike near the Louisiana-Alabama border around uh, Wednesday. Yes, we are now into the Greek alphabet because there have been so many storms in this historic 2020 Atlantic hurricane season. Zeta is the earliest 27th named storm in recorded history, arriving a full month earlier than the previous record 20. 27th storm that hit back in 2005. Zeta is the 11th named storm to landfall in the continental United States, and that is a new record for the most U.S. landfalling storms in a single year. And Zeta also sets a new record for Louisiana as the fifth named storm to hit the state in a single season. Mm. That is a very unwelcome new record, I should add. Poor Louisiana. Let's hope that Zeta may not hit Louisiana after all. I don't think there's a chance of that, but let's hope that the impacts are minimal. Okay. Meanwhile, out west... Two of the largest fires in Colorado's history are burning dangerously close together, and there are fears that they could merge into one gigantic inferno. Of course they will. In Colorado, some snow has finally arrived to help firefighters slow the spread of two of the largest wildfires in state history, the Cameron Peak Fire and the East Troublesome Fire, very well named. They're both burning in the same county and could merge. The growing fires have forced the evacuation of thousands of residents and the closure of Rocky Mountain National Park. The three largest fires in Colorado state history have all hit since July of this year. Still just a coincidence, just like the, what, five of the six largest fires in state history out here in California happened to all hit this year? Yep, and in Southern California, two firefighters have been critically injured, Mm. and mandatory evacuations have been ordered for 100,000 residents during a pandemic due to the fast growth of the Silverado fire that erupted on Monday near Irvine, south of Los Angeles. Nearly the entire state is now facing a new round of extreme fire weather with dangerous hurricane-force winds and extremely low humidity. Utilities cut electricity to thousands across the state so that their equipment didn't spark new fires. It is late October. How long is this fire season expected to continue? Fire season's pretty much year-round now, so... 
Good luck with guessing that one. Mm. Finally, in the final presidential debate of the endless 2020 election, Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden laid out starkly different visions on climate change. Donald Trump has presented no formal plan to address climate change and indeed plans to further expand domestic fossil fuel extraction, making climate change even worse. Trump again took credit for President Obama's policies that have reduced air and water pollution and carbon emissions, along with the delivery some colorful lies about windows and birds and wind energy and more. Biden pressed his $2 trillion plan to reinvigorate the U.S. economy and create millions of jobs by acting to solve climate change. $2 trillion? $2 trillion. Donald Trump says it's $100 trillion. And Donald Trump is lying. Oh. Biden's plan also includes upgrading the nation's infrastructure and transitioning to clean energy. But the biggest moment of the night was when Biden acknowledged the scientific reality that the U.S. will transition away from fossil fuels. I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would that's transition. a big statement. That's it is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly oh. because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time. We have that's one maybe final the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. We have to move toward a net zero emissions. The first place to do that by the year 2035 is in energy okay. production. By 2050, totally. Corporate media portrayed Biden's statement as a gaffe, as opposed to noting the rising costs of Trump's denial as climate impacts accelerate. It was likely the first time that the public heard a national leader be honest about the scientific reality that we must phase out fossil fuels. It wasn't a gaffe. He was telling the truth. Good for Joe Biden there. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. So this is what the truth feels like. This is what I had in mind. There you go. Yeah, Thank you very much, Desi Doyan. Well done. You're welcome. Uh, also, my thanks to our produ- uh, to our guest today, Aaron Belkin of TakeBackTheCourt.today, and to all of you for spending a portion of your uh, day or night with us, dot .today. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. All of that made possible by those of you who support us by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We Really need your support right now more than ever. Uh, bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. That is your truth for today. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. So this is what the truth